You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. We're Radio Arlington, your volunteer produced, independent community radio station, made by and for you and your friends and neighbors and DMV folk you might not yet know. The last year has shown us just how important independent media is to our democracy. I hope you'll join me in supporting AIM during our spring fund drive going on now. Your tax-deductible contribution keeps the fresh, local, wildly diverse programming coming. We're a quick click away at WERA.FM. That's WERA.FM to make your donation and support independent community media here in Arlington. Now, on to some curiosity. We live in a society today now that's constantly changing and we all need to be good at learning and know how to learn so that we can keep up with the changing world. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Every year in March and April, the spring peepers come out loudly. Pseudacris crucifer, which translates to cross-bearing false locust, is actually a frog. And they aren't always noisy, but they sure are in spring. They make quite the racket for an amphibian that's all of an inch long. I assume I heard them as a kid, although I don't remember, but I vividly recall the first time I was conscious of them as an adult. I was sitting in a parking lot at my son's gymnastics lessons, and I could not figure out what I was hearing. That unleashed a fever of curious exploration. What's making the sound? Can I see the source? Is it unique to this location? Seems like it might be specific to spring. Will I hear it when I come back in a few days? Does it change in response to other sounds around me? Where can I learn more? The questions seemed endless. I was deep in the throes of scientific thinking, a kind of knowledge and intentional information seeking that includes asking questions, testing hypotheses, making observations, recognizing patterns, and making inferences. It's a heady place to be, full of questions and excited about discovery. Kids occupy that space a good deal more than the rest of us. But not so much at school, it seems. So much as one might hope, at least. That got the attention of Jamie Giraud, a professor in the Educational Psychology and Applied Developmental Sciences Program in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia. Jamie directs the Research in Education and Learning Lab at UVA, which focuses on questions related to STEM learning. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, and motivation from a cognitive developmental perspective. Her current projects look at the development of curiosity, including how instructional practices in schools influence curiosity and how curiosity influences learning. I spotted an article about Jamie's recent receipt of a 2021 Jacobs Research Foundation Fellowship, a globally competitive fellowship program for early and mid-career researchers whose work is dedicated to improving the development, learning, and living conditions of children and youth. 
worthy endeavors. And apparently, she's part of a cohort of fellows interested in curiosity. So you know I had to check it out. I'm delighted to have you join me today. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk with you about curiosity. Well, congratulations on the fellowship. I'm so excited they wrote a little story about this so that I found my way to you. Yes, I'm so excited. It's interesting because it's a global fellowship. So there are so many people from around the world that I've never had the chance to interact with. And the foundation is going to help us to connect and use all of our different perspectives to deepen our work and our approach to studying curiosity and the many other things that the other fellows are studying. Very cool. Very cool. So let me ask how you define curiosity. I'm sure each of those fellows has a slightly different approach. What's your working definition? Even I sometimes use different definitions depending on <laughs> kind of the, the purpose of what I'm trying to do. Um, and one of the important tasks that we're currently focusing on is trying to come up with measures that actually assess different types of curiosity and different aspects yeah. of curiosity in children, because it is so kind of complicated of, a, of an idea and multifaceted in itself. But kind of more specifically, the way that I've conceptualized curiosity is the motivation or desire to resolve some uncertainty or gap in one's knowledge. And I look at this as both kind of a state-focused variable where it's like in some moment, do you recognize something that you want to find out and, and then are curious to act on that feeling? But also, I am really interested in trying to get this at an individual difference variable where we can see differences across people in, in how much uncertainty is most likely to get them to explore and try to find information so that then we can figure out, you know, is there a kind of an optimal level of curiosity and how can we get people to be more curious if that would be helpful for their learning? Yeah, I actually want to come back to that. What I started to think of as the, the uncertainty paradox as I was reading some of your work. I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, what got you curious about curiosity? Well, originally, I was interested in children's science learning and science education. And I did a project when I was in college for my senior thesis that looked at the effects of implementing a hands-on science curriculum in Head Start classrooms. So these are young children, ages you know four or five years old, and they're in this program to try to help them be ready to start kindergarten. And we found that when we implemented this hands-on science curriculum, those children improved not just in their science learning, but also in their math and their literacy, and even in their social emotional skills and their approaches to learning. Kind of across the board, we saw benefits of that curriculum. And so when I was thinking about why we might have seen that kind of broad impact, I really started looking at what was it that they were doing, what was different about what they were getting from those hands-on activities to explore science ideas, as opposed to what they were doing in the classrooms that didn't have this curriculum. And it, I just was thinking they're learning to learn. And the way that they're learning to learn is to recognize what they know and what they don't know, but also you know, to, to be curious to find out that information. And I think that that's such an important skill to have when you are in school is to be able to recognize what is it that you do not know that you, you know, where, what is that missing information? And then also feeling the kind of confidence and motivation to seek out that information to kind of fill your, your information gap and, and understand what it is that you don't know. So what's interesting to me about that sort of science mindset is it doesn't actually have to be about science 
right? It could be applied to anything because it is sort of this idea of a way of trying to know. And the same sort of thing could be used in any kind of a context, right? Yeah. And we've even looked at classroom instruction in other domains like math, and we see a lot of curiosity promotion and opportunities for students to become curious and to act on that curiosity, even in these domains where we think there's a stronger idea of there being kind of a right answer or a right way of doing something. You still you still see questions around kind of the wonderment of, you know, well, why does this work? Or what would happen if we tried it this way? And and also exploration and, you know, can we do this in a different way? And what other what other ideas can we think of? So are there findings from that research that strike you as sort of most exciting so far? We've mostly done descriptive work so far. Uh So just seeing like, what does this look like? And I think it's exciting to see that some teachers are, you know, across domains doing a lot to promote their students' curiosity. And so I think that's just exciting to see that that's happening, even though that's not something that we're holding them accountable for. But I also think that it's exciting just to think about kind of what that looks like in terms of a different approach to education, right? So like you said, not just in science, where it's kind of obvious to think about how you can integrate curiosity promotion and what curiosity looks like, but really thinking about across domains and even combining domains and doing more interdisciplinary ways of thinking and learning how to use curiosity to drive what it is students are learning about and then build in and add in those different topics that they need to cover to address the standards of learning or you know the goals that the school district has, um, but letting students' curiosity kind of lead the way. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because I was looking at some of your work on this and you had two observations that that really struck me as very current and kind of timeless across the lifespan. One was on sort of evaluating who you should question to get information. And then the second was this idea about kids learning to identify their knowledge gaps, as you say, and using layers of exploration to gradually correct misconceptions. And I thought, holy cow, children are better at changing their minds (laughs) than the rest of us are because of that learning curve. Is that a fair... Uh, extrapolation on my part? Uh, Would children have less inhibition around not wanting to look like they don't know something? I think as adults, especially, we are self-conscious about how we come off to others, especially if we're with people we're not super familiar with. We want to appear like we're smart. And you see that in students in school where they might not want to ask a question because they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing or that they're dumb. And young children just don't have that kind of inhibition. They're not as focused on what others are thinking about them when they're really young. And that's something that we see develop over time. And so I think that's one reason. They also just don't have as much experience using their knowledge to solve problems. You know, they're more in this exploration phase of life where it's all about kind of exploring and finding out all the things that they don't know and, and so many things in the world that don't make sense when they see it. And so they're trying to just figure out why things are the way they are and make sense of them. That's why sometimes you even see children can outperform adults on different kinds of problem solving or exploration tasks because they are more open-minded and and kind of less inhibited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could all learn something there. So I want to go back to this, to uncertainty and the, the critical role that uncertainty plays in curiosity, because I find this so fascinating. There's this 
this uncertainty that kind of creates this desire to know more, to explore. But the desire to know more is a desire to resolve the uncertainty, right? It's a desire to make uncertainty go away. But then a tolerance for uncertainty that allows for a continuation and an expansion of that exploration. But if there's too much uncertainty, it can have a chilling effect on curiosity. So talk to me about the sweet spot of uncertainty. Yeah, it's it's like motivation more generally with this idea of what do you feel capable of doing? If something seems too hard and you don't think that you'll be successful in it, you're not going to be as motivated to try that out unless it's really high value. So you kind of weigh the value with the cost that it's going to take. And so I think that's similar to how we approach uncertainty is if something seems so far beyond what we know or what we're willing to put into finding the information about, we're not going to be as likely to approach that. Or similarly, if it's kind of not informative enough, if it's you know a small question like, oh, I wonder what the answer to that trivia question is, but you don't really care. You know, you might not even think it's worth looking it up to find out. So the sweet spot is really just kind of where you feel that the value is high enough to justify the cost that it will take. And so there's you know, the value might be lower if the cost is lower, the value might be higher to justify a higher cost. But again, that is going to be different for different people, because some people are going to be kind of more willing to put in the effort. And and it can be a kind of risk too, right? You're always going to be giving something up. In general, when we are curious, we're giving up our time to, to find out the information over doing something else we might have to do. And in school, I think about this as a kind of curiosity risk in terms of performance, because so much of school revolves around academic achievement and getting the right answers and getting good grades. And sometimes you might be curious about something that's not being assessed on those school, those tests. And so if you, you know, explore your curiosity, that might take you away from getting the work done that you need to do to get a good grade or learning what is going to be on the test rather than what you're curious to know. And so that's going to have a different level of kind of acceptability for different students in terms of, you know, where their priorities lie and and what they're willing to sacrifice to explore their curiosity. Well, and it would also have trade-offs from a teacher's perspective, right? If the teacher is being rewarded and assessed based on the student's performance on tests and not on their expressions of curiosity, then teachers get sort of put into a bind in terms of how they'll invest time and energy. So what's a, I mean, what's a teacher to do under those circumstances? Yeah, teachers are are kind of stuck because they don't want to do a disservice to their students and not prepare them for those assessments that could hold them back. Or, you know, they, they're going to still be taking high stakes assessments like SATs to get into college. And so I think the teachers feel a sense of responsibility to prepare them and also a sense of responsibility to the school to make sure that the test scores that are used for accountability markers for the school are are doing, you know, are at the level that they need to be. So I think teachers are stuck, but it's amazing that so many of them are still able to find ways of promoting curiosity in their students. That said, I do think that at the systemic level, the institutional level, if we could kind of reframe the goals of education to be more about teaching children to learn and to be curious and to be creative thinkers and problem solvers, as opposed to 
having more discrete pieces of information that students are expected to learn, I think that that would be a better outcome for promoting lifelong learning and also a better fit for what our world looks like today. We we live in a society today now that's constantly changing and we all need to be good at learning and know how to learn so that we can keep up with the changing world. And I think that that's challenging when our education system revolves around learning discrete information that might become outdated by the time we're adults. Mm. So you know that I, I I harvest curiosity practices. Are there practices that you have seen teachers use that really do what you would hope to see? Are there things that we could be doing more of? Yeah, we organize our framework of things that we think teachers could do into two types of behaviors. So one of those is kind of getting children to become curious initially and supporting those opportunities to become curious. And the other set of principles are around supporting curious behaviors or information seeking. And in that first set, I think the easiest two that teachers could implement and that we see a lot of teachers implementing is first just to give children the opportunity to become curious. And what that looks like is space, just some silence, some pauses between when a question is asked or an assignment is given before they require them to try to figure out the answer or ask a student to respond or, you know, or even just the way they're phrasing a question, you know, framing Uh it as more open-ended to see what children think of and, and what they recognize that they know and what they could know by asking a question. And then the other practice that I think is very powerful is modeling. So we've seen so many teachers who even pretend they feign curiosity by, you know, pretending not to know something to get their children to kind of brainstorm and think through a problem. But the best situations is when teachers genuinely don't know something and show students that not only is that not a bad thing to not know, but that it's exciting to have something new that you get to find out now that you otherwise wouldn't have learned if you didn't become curious about it and, you know, ask the question and try to find out that answer. And I think modeling is really where students are going to learn how to be curious in academic context, because right now research suggests that children think they're in school to learn specific things and they're not supposed to be curious because there are specific things they're there to learn. You know, that that has nothing to do with what they want to know. But I think by teachers showing that even they're curious in these classroom settings, that students would definitely, you know, rethink the way that they approach school and and see a space for their curiosity to be involved in their classroom learning. It's a pretty breathtaking idea that students would actually specifically think that they're not supposed to be curious at school. Like that's a that's a heart stopper. <laughs> Yeah. um, And I think, you know, we need more research to explore whether this is seen across different kinds of schools and across different grades. But a study looked across a pretty wide range of grade levels and found there weren't really age differences that all of the children could come up with things they were curious to know about. and, And they related to academic content and subjects like biology and different areas of science and social studies. And they just, when they were asked specifically what they were curious to know about in school, they they were kind of stumped by the question. And a couple of them even explicitly said, why would I be curious in school? Like we're there to learn, you know, the, for the tests. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was surprising, but I do, I am, I'm curious to know what do other types of schools look like? Schools that have different approaches to teaching and learning, like 
Montessori or Reggio Emilia approaches or even IB programs that put more emphasis on kind of the process of learning rather than the outcomes or the performance pieces. The focus is more on the process and being child-driven and independent, you know, rather than the teacher kind of telling the child what to do. Right. It does sound as if having a sense of agency um, yes. <laughs> is, is huge, that if you feel like you're getting told, then it's like, okay, I'm here to just get told as opposed to, oh, I'm, like it's up to me that 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 invitation, you know, apart from choosing to be curious, but being given the opportunity to be curious uh, sounds like it's foundational. That invitation to to show up in this way encourages people to do it. Right. And I think even as adults, one reason why we might not always choose to be curious is because our lives are so full of things that we're expected to do and, and tasks that we we think we know this is how I do it, so I'm going to keep doing it this way. And and there's just not the time and space allotted for us to kind of just think and and become curious and explore ideas just for the sake of of exploring. Yeah, yeah. So I know you also have a grant through the Templeton Foundation and looking there at measuring other intellectual virtues like creativity and open-mindedness, intellectual courage and critical thinking, hoping to explore longitudinal associations with curiosity. This sounds so cool. Can you tell me more about what you're studying and are you at a place where you're finding things at this point or it's too early yet? So we were supposed to start doing some data collection last year, but our data collection is going to be taking place in schools. So that did not happen. Um, and we've been... Uh, the yeah, COVID been curve. <laughs> yeah. So we've been working on trying to develop ways of assessing the things that we're trying to assess over Zoom with young children, which has been interesting. Um, so we don't have many findings coming out yet, but we have come up with a lot of different ideas of ways of exploring these things. And even in our designing of some of the newer measures, we're running into this tricky problem of trying to separate out curiosity from creativity or open-minded thinking or risk-taking or, you know, that courage piece, because it does just seem like these things are so interrelated. And that's one of the things we want to explore is, can we get at them individually? You know, are they kind of so related that they always hang together and we're going to look at patterns across different kinds of tasks to see, can we differentiate one from the other? And do they have similar developmental trajectories? Or does it seem like one or another is kind of leading development for, for the other ones? And and then we'll also have observations of the educational experiences children are having and try to link those to any changes we see over time across the different constructs. I want to check back in about 30 years when you've been talking to them <laughs> into <laughs> adulthood. I just think that trajectory would be so interesting to to get a handle on. Very cool. So before I let you go, are you game for another wordplay, as it were, with my big jar of wannabe analogies? Of course. So I literally have a big jar here, and with little slips of paper, I'm going to take out three, one for you, one for me, and one for our audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. And Okay, yours is sticky note. How is curiosity like a sticky note? 
Mine is horoscope. How is curiosity like a horoscope? Um, and I have one for the audience. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go? Um, I can go ahead. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at all of the sticky notes all over my desk. <laughs> oh, woman after my own heart. So how is curiosity like a sticky note? Well, you know, when you become curious, it's usually linked to something that has happened. So that makes me think of that sticky part of the sticky note, mm -hmm. but then it takes you in all different directions. So you spread away from the sticky note, but you can even flip, you know, the other direction and be on the other side of the sticky note and cover this wider space that kind of diverges from that original, that original sticky area that connected you to whatever sparked the curiosity to begin with. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I like that. So I have horoscope. Um, well, <laughs> um, I'm going to say, you know, just as we were talking about curiosity, you know, we, we give it these different names and we make these distinctions, but, you know, maybe are those the right distinctions? I sort of think of horoscope that way, that we create these buckets um, and we put names on them and we assign them characteristics. But when you start to look at them, you realize there's an awful lot of commonality and sort of wash between them. And I think, I think curiosity is like that. It's, it, uh, it, it can take these sort of predictive forms in the way that a horoscope might, but I also think that you can get out of it sort of what you decide to read into it. So I guess that's how I think curiosity is like a horoscope and audience <laughs> in a timely COVID moment. How is curiosity like Zoom? <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Uh, well, Jamie, thank you so much for this. I'm very excited to see what you do. And, and I'm delighted that you're going to finally be able to get into the classroom eventually with your studies yes, this year definitely <laughs> yeah what a what a curveball for everybody's work well thank you so much it was so fun talking with you and um, being part of this podcast you've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM you can find all my shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to Be Curious, and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Don't forget to send us your Zoom analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Jamie Giro. Check out her lab and links to more about those peepers on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Maisie Dreamer by The Nursery via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. It's like my favorite thing to talk about is all of the examples of my kids being curious and all the things that I've learned from their curiosity. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash novahousehunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, 
where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. 